I can't come up here without my sermon because this, this is the first Halloween sermon I've ever preached. How about that? Not the first time I've preached on Halloween. Happy Halloween, by the way. Happy Reformation Day, too. It's lots of different things, isn't it? We have just finished a long, wide-ranging uh, series on the kingdom of God, and I thought maybe it would be nice to do kind of a, of a, of a one-Sunday uh, series, as it were, here, and get a little more down-to-earth and practical with you this morning. And so um, it is October 31st, and I've been preaching for about 25 years or so, and I have done probably 100 Christmas sermons and 15 Thanksgiving sermons and 20 Easter sermons, and I've never done a Halloween sermon, so I thought, why not, right? So today I'm going to call it, What to Tell Your Kids About Halloween. What to Tell Your Kids About Halloween. Now I realize a couple things. I realize that today is October 31st, it's the end of the month, and so I probably should have hit you with this a week ago at least. Uh, I also realize that, that most of you are not parents of little kids that go trick-or-treating, if you do the math here, but it's, this is not just for kids, and it's not just for families that have little kids that might want to do certain things on Halloween, um, or high schoolers that might want to do certain things on Halloween, it, and it's not just uh, for them, it's, it's for you, and I also realize that, that most of you families have already had to, to deal with this at some point, because... Halloween is now by far the second most important holiday in the United States if you measure it by how much money, money is spent on the holiday. We are up to about, I think, $80 per family for the average family unit in the United States spent on the Halloween holiday. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, and as you know, uh, Christians and their response to Halloween are kind of all over the map as far as what they think of it. Uh, and, and I think it is good to look at some ways to think Christianly about this holiday. And so again, this is not just for what to tell your kids, this is for what to tell ourselves, and how we might turn this time, and maybe not just this year, but in the future, this time is becoming an increasingly big deal for people, and, and um, to turn it into a chance to advance the gospel, at least in our families, and, and maybe even beyond that. So let me just tell you where I'm coming from as far as Halloween is concerned and my background. I mean, I grew up in western Massachusetts in the 70s. Uh, we did not get that exercised or upset about Halloween. Uh, back then, Halloween was a pretty laid-back affair, and I'm sure it was for a lot of you too, and I think it is today for a lot of folks. But back then, you know, nobody ever, as far as I knew, nobody ever thought of Halloween having to do with Satan or the occult or anything like that. Uh, the only false worship we were in danger of back then was the worship of chocolate, um, because if you're a kid, Halloween is about two words, right? Free candy. You thought it was free. Of course, your parents were paying for the rest of the neighborhood, so it kind of evened out at the end of the day. But, but we, were, we were laid back about, we were also laid back about costumes, by the way, compared to today. Uh, I've seen some pretty amazing costumes on Facebook in the last couple of days, but in Massachusetts, on October 31st at night, um, this was in the days before they lengthened daylight savings time, and so it was always very dark, and it was always very cold. Where I lived, it could be 20 to 30 degrees outside, and a few times there was snow on the ground. And so whatever costume you had that you were going to wear for trick-or-treating, your, your mother made you wear a big ski jacket over it anyway, and usually a toboggan too, which in the north we had another name for, we called it a, a hat. Um, and and the, really, the only thing you could really do in, in, in Massachusetts was to cover your face. And so we did that. What we typically do is we go out to the corner store and we get one of those plastic masks, you know, for about $1.49. Some of you had some of these, right? You had your Frankenstein or you were the Wolfman or you were Superman or Batman. And the plastic mask had a little hole in it 
that you can kind of stick your tongue through. Be careful because you might cut your tongue on it. It's about this wide, right? And it had a little teeny elastic band in the back that usually broke about halfway through the night, right? So we would get that, and uh, that was our costume. And, and the Halloween that I remember the most vividly from my early life was the time, I think I was about 10, maybe I was 9, but it was time that my little brother Steve and I, we learned a, a really good lesson about greed. Um, back then, I know I'm talking about the old days, but back then, if you were old enough, which was like, and I'm getting like low frequency hum up here. Back then, if it was like, uh, if you were six or seven, you could go out by yourself because the streets were safer back then and it didn't matter and your parents didn't have to go with you. Maybe you'd go with an older brother or whatever and so you'd go all around the neighborhood. All the kids would do that. And um, my brother and I, we were like nine and seven and we had, we had made plans for a really big night of trick-or-treating for like two hours. We were going to go out there. We were just going to kill it. And so we got, we each had those brown paper bags, you know, that you got from the grocery store, the double-lined ones. And we had our little plastic masks, and we were just going to get a ton of candy. We were ready to go. And it was a great night for it. Kind of cold, but it always was. And we got a lot of candy. I mean, we, we started at probably 6.15 or 6.30 because it's already dark there. And we were going to go as late as we could. And so we were starting to really fill up those bags. About 8.15 p.m. or so, we got to, uh, to Brookwood Road where these two ladies would always set up a table on the sidewalk and they made hot apple cider for all of the freezing little children that would go by and they'd give us a cup of hot apple cider to kind of keep us alive, you know. But um, I didn't like hot apple cider and I, I figured, I, I didn't want to touch my mask because I figured it would break and so I, I didn't want to drink the hot apple cider. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to litter. Um, so I just put the cup of hot apple cider in the bag with the rest of my candy. <laughs> and I, th I think Steve might have done the same thing that I did, so big mistake, okay? At this point, Steve and I realized it's getting kind of late. We probably should start heading for home, but we're not going to go home without hitting a few very generous houses that we know about on the way home. And one of them was my piano teacher, Mrs. Rommel. We got to go by her house because she always has a lot of candy. Well, I don't know if we realized how late it was when we got there, but when we got there, the poor lady was out of candy. And so we came to the door and said, trick or treat, and she wanted to give us something so badly, but she didn't have any candy left in her house, so she took a couple of eight-inch pumpkins that she had that were sitting in the window, and she just plopped them one in each of our bags. And so um, <laughs> between the apple cider and the pumpkins, what was happening, you can only imagine what was happening to these paper bags. So we started running for home as fast as we could, you know, leaving a trail of, of, of Tootsie Rolls and Mary Janes on the freezing sidewalk behind us. And we lost a lot of candy. Fortunately, my parents pulled up in the car right about very shortly after the time, and they're like, what are you doing out here? Get in the car, it's late. So we jumped in. And uh, we didn't lose all of our candy, but we learned a pretty big lesson that night, and we kind of toned it down after that year. Um, anyway, that, that was not a spiritual illustration. But I, I find there is a lot of confusion today about Halloween as far as how it got started. Um, I talked to people who, who've thought it started maybe as kind of a satanic or occultic ritual or some kind of celebration of, of evil. Um, others, because of the connection to All Saints Day, assumed that Halloween was a kind of church holiday that kind of got sort of twisted and changed into what it is today. So I did some research this week, and I confirmed that Halloween did in fact start as a pagan festival, like a lot of our holidays was. It was not, a lot of our holidays were, it, it was not particularly satanic or evil or occult, but it was the product of, of, of a culture that did not yet know Christ. And so it was grounded in their superstitions. And, and what, what happened was the ancient Celts, who um, back in the first millennium inhabited a lot of Western Europe, 
They had a festival that they called Soin, which you might see, if you see it in writing, it, it's spelled like S-A-M-H-A-I-N, I think, but it's pronounced Soin. It lasted from October 31st to November 2nd. And since this happens at the time of year when summer, where everything is kind of alive and kicking, gives way to winter, which is when all of nature kind of dies off, the, the, the thought was that, that for those three days or so, the world of the living and the world of the dead would kind of overlap and that that would allow spirits of dead people to kind of roam the earth and mingle with the living. And you can, you can trace some of the traditions we have today, like wearing masks and carving faces on, on gourds or pumpkins now, or even pulling pranks. These things got their beginnings because people were either trying to imitate those spirits of the dead or they were trying to scare them or, or trick them into staying away and not being a pain. Well, what happened was, as Europe became more Christianized over the centuries, the church would often make an effort to sort of baptize some of these ancient pagan holidays into a Christian celebration of some kind. And historians differ about how deliberate this was, but in the ninth century, Pope Gregory IV took the holiday that was called All Saints Day, which had been celebrated on a couple of different dates up to that time, and he fixed it on November 1st, right smack in the middle of this old pagan festival for the dead. And of course, that made October 31st All Saints Eve, which you could also call All Hallows Eve, which was, of course, shortened to the term Halloween. And All Saints Day has picked up a lot of baggage of its own over the years, being associated with purgatory and prayers for the dead and things like that. But in its, in its original form, that day was really just a day to recognize and to celebrate our Christian brothers and sisters who have passed on to be with Jesus. And we have a name for this group of people today, by the way. They're called the Church Triumphant. The Church Triumphant. Don't you like that name? I love that name. They, they, these people have won the victory over sin and death thanks to Jesus Christ. They have rested from their labors, and now we rejoice because of their triumph, their victory in Christ. So that's what we remember. And, and here's where, where that might come into play a little bit in a discussion with your kids or maybe your grandkids or somebody else, because at, at some point along the line, maybe at this very time of year, if it hasn't happened already, your children are going to ask you if ghosts are real. Right? How many of ours actually had this, this discussion with your kids? Okay? A few of you. The rest of you will. That's a very natural question. In fact, a lot of people struggle with it. You might remember that Jesus' disciples struggled with this. Remember when he came walking to them on the water one night at night? And they, remember what they thought he was? A ghost. Well, how could he be a ghost? Well, you could take your children to any number of scriptures to show them that ghosts are not real. For instance, you could look at Hebrews 9.27 where it says it's appointed to each of us once to die and then to face judgment. So everyone who has died as either spending eternity apart from God or already safe in the arms of Jesus, nobody is out there roaming the earth. And in the case of Christians, you can take them to other places in the New Testament. You can take them to Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about how he's on earth, but he'd love to be with Jesus, and he realizes that if he gets out of his physical body and dies, he'll actually be with Christ. Or you can go to 2 Corinthians 5 where he says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or even to the cross itself where Jesus turned to that penitent thief, the one who had accepted him on the cross next to him and said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. You're not going to have to spend any time walking the earth or going to purgatory or doing anything like that. You're going to be with me today. Because you see your children 
might be concerned about the people that they know who have died, and they have questions. Maybe, maybe family members, maybe even friends or family members of friends have died. And, and you can assure them that those who are in Christ are even now safe, and they're rejoicing with God in heaven, which is where all the spirits of believers in Jesus go as soon as we die, not after some prolonged period of roaming the earth or anything like that. Your kids need to know that. Not only can we celebrate that truth, but, but at this time of year, in the spirit of what All Saints Day was originally supposed to be, you can even spend some more time, if you like, talking about or celebrating the people in your life who have passed away and far from being ghosts, these people are now in heaven, but they had a major impact on your life and your own walk with Christ. Maybe even it's possible the person that led you to Jesus is now with Jesus. And you can tell your kids about that. Legacy is a huge thing. As I continue to talk with Pastor Wes um, recently about the passing of his dad, the thing that comes up more than anything else is that man's legacy those who are still living on here on earth that have been affected by his walk with Jesus. And that's always going to be something to celebrate any time of year. Gets us to thinking about our own legacy too, I think. Now that being said, I think we have to admit that Halloween, and indeed the whole month of October, is becoming increasingly creepy and disturbing the way many people are celebrating. And, and in addition to the violent and gory movies, and I'll step on a couple toes here because I know that a few of you have some weird attractions uh, to some of that stuff, um, which, I'm, you know, I'm, let, me, let me just suggest this, that we don't want to be using the excuse of a scary holiday to wallow in depravity because there's a lot of things in those movies. But, but there's more attention today being paid to things like evil and the occult and spirits. And indeed, there's been a revival in recent decades of some old pagan religions and Wicca is probably the most prominent form of this today. I'm sure you've heard about that. Please do not be deceived. The spirit world is real. Satan is real. Demons, evil spirits who used to be holy angels, are real. And, and these beings are not to be celebrated. They are our enemies. Their goal is to influence us for the sake of evil, to do anything that they can do in our lives to try to separate us from our Savior, and to blind the minds of those people who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior so that they won't come to Him. That's what they're trying to do. They're our enemies. These beings are powerful. They're not as powerful as Jesus. They're not even the same league as Him, but they're powerful. And if you begin offering them ground in your life, they will take it. The Bible in both Old and New Testaments takes a very hard line against sorcery, witchcraft, divination, necromancy, taking part in any pagan rituals meant to connect to the spirit world. And to look for guidance or comfort or companionship from any other part of the spirit world other than from God himself is first of all a form of idolatry and secondly it can be very dangerous spiritually. You may have heard people, had people telling you that Christians cannot be, quote, possessed by evil spirits. You may have other people that have told you that Christians can be possessed by evil spirits. To me, this is a question of semantics, just words. The Bible clearly teaches us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, among other places, that Christians are owned by God. He owns us, not anyone else. But that does not mean that an evil spirit cannot greatly influence your thinking or behavior. 
One of the reasons that God gives us the armor of God in Ephesians 6, our faith, our salvation, our peace, the truth of the gospel, all those things, is so that nothing will get inside those defenses. And if you are willingly opening yourself up to demonic influence by messing around with seances or Ouija boards or elements of witchcraft, or if you begin you know, fooling around with adding elements of Wicca or nature worship or anything else into your belief system, you can be sure that the enemy will, will take whatever opening that you make for him and he will walk into it because you just put out the welcome mat. Just because you know, your head doesn't spin around and you don't speak with a creepy voice, does not mean that the enemy is not pulling some of the strings in your life. Now, I believe that each family has to make their own faith-informed decision as to what to do about Halloween and to how much to join in on the, the, the harmless, secularized version of what, the, what we usually encounter today. On the other hand, listen, if you're one of those folks that struggles with an attachment to the occult or the more spiritual side of the holiday, or if one of your kids is leaning in this direction, I think the decision's been already made for you. You don't participate. You just stay away from it. You don't need to open yourself or them up to temptation. And if you have a Christian friend who has come out of a, a new age or, or Wiccan or, or pagan background, it might be a hard night for them. It might be. So maybe you can invite them over to have some spiritually uplifting conversation or maybe just watch a non-scary movie together just to get through the evening. All right, now, I just want to share one more truth with you this morning that is very related to what we've been talking about. And uh, I, want, I want to take you to two scripture passages. First of all, go to Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 1. In, in Revelation 1, uh, John, who is writing this book, he's in exile, and, and the Spirit just comes upon him one day. And the first thing he sees of all these visions that he has about the end times and, and about the church and everything else in Revelation, he sees a vision of Jesus. And it's not, it doesn't look like the Jesus that he walked around with on earth because this Jesus, and it's the same Jesus, is very impressive. He is very glorious. He is bright and shining and kind of scary. And he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and, and some other things going on. And so John falls before him and then Jesus says, hey, Get up, I need to tell you what's going on and who I am. And then in Revelation 1, chapter, or verse 17 and 18, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive for more, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. There is a common misconception today that somehow Satan, like the mythological Greek god Hades, that somehow Satan is sort of lord of the dead and that he is in charge of hell and that somehow the demons help him run the place. Can I tell you something? That's not even close to the truth. Hell is going to be a place of eternal torment for Satan. It was created specifically to punish him and the other evil spirits for their sin and rebellion. So Satan does not like hell. There is, however, a person who is very much in charge of death and the grave. And in fact, this person is the Lord of the living and the dead. Jesus' Father gave him the keys of life and death when he defeated death through his death and resurrection, which means that Jesus is Lord of both sides of the veil. It means that Jesus was able to hold the hand of your departed loved one when they passed away. And he didn't have to let go through that transition. It means that for the believer, 
death has lost its power. Death has lost its power. We still die, but, but, but Paul says that, that we now own death. He basically says that. All things are yours, whether life or death. He said that in 1 Corinthians. You could have a lot of pictures of death, but, but it's, it's kind of like, a, now it's like a toll booth opening up to a much wider and more glorious highway after you get through. And by the way, the toll's been paid by somebody else. Now, to see how this is possible and to help your kids understand also when they begin to have a fear of death, that kids will all get naturally at some point. It helps us to understand another passage, which is Colossians 2, 13 to 15. So turn back to the book of Colossians. And I love this passage. It tells us, it tells us how Jesus has authority over the grave. Colossians 2, Paul is writing to believers in the church. Verse 13 He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Verse 13 reminds us that God has brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life through the work of Christ on the cross, having, forgive all of our, having forgiven all of our sins which were paid for by Jesus at Calvary. This is the very heart of the gospel. But then Paul goes on and he says that in doing this, Jesus actually defeated the powers of darkness and going even further, he made a public spectacle of them. Whereas in this translation, he put them to open shame. Satan and his demons have been not only defeated, they've been humiliated. And how did this happen? Well, Paul says they were disarmed. They've been disarmed. Well, what, what arms were they carrying? What was their weapon? You know what their weapon was? The weapon that Satan had was a certificate of guilt with your name on it. In fact, Paul calls it a certificate of debt. You owed a debt. Not to Satan. You did not owe the debt to Satan. He's not the one whose law you broke. You owed the debt to God. Now God wanted to forgive us. God wanted to redeem you. He wanted to redeem us. But Satan could always take that certificate and, and, and throw it in God's face and say, hey, they owe you. They've sinned. You can't forgive them until they pay the price, which means they have to die forever. If you're really fair, God, you have to treat them just like you're going to treat me. That's what Satan would say, and he'd be right. But on the cross, on the cross, Jesus, by paying the price himself, took that certificate of debt, and he wrote paid in full over the whole thing, and then he signed it with his blood. And Jesus took that canceled certificate and he waved it right in Satan's face in full view of the angelic host. And he said, hey you, check this out. It's over. They're free. And then he rose from the dead to seal the deal. And those of us who put our trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ on that cross are indeed free. We are free from the obligation to pay God back with eternal death. And he is now free to take us and adopt us into his own household as his sons and daughters. 
And if you're here today and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope that hearing what he has done for you will convince you that you can freely and joyfully do that. But you know what? Satan doesn't give up easily. He still tries to control us. Even after we've come to Christ. Even, even when we have that freedom, Satan still tries to control us. You know what he does first? As the accuser of the brethren, as Scripture calls him, Satan picks up that old canceled certificate. He rips it off the cross where it was nailed to, and he still tries to wave it in God's face. Now, it doesn't do him much good when he does that because Jesus is sitting there advocating for us with the scars on his hands. And so Satan says, you know what, I'm going to try something different. If Satan can't get anywhere with God, maybe he can get somewhere with us. And so he takes that canceled certificate of debt and he tries to fold it up so we won't see where it says paid in full. And then he waves it in our face instead. And at certain times, after you've fallen back into some familiar sin, or after you've done something that seems really, really shameful, or maybe even somebody else does something to you that's really shameful, Satan comes up to you and he says, you know what? Now you've done it. God will never forgive you now. All the cross and all that, yeah, I know, but this time you've done, you've done it too many times. You've gone too far. You're stained. That stain's never coming out. You're guilty. And if I were you, I'd run and hide. Because you don't want God finding you like that. He would be ashamed of you right now. You know what? Sometimes that's exactly what we do. We are ashamed, and we run and hide. We run from God. We run from, from prayer. We run from this. We run from the body of Christ. We run away from, from whatever it is that, that, that normally connects us to the Lord because we are ashamed. And so we run and hide just like Satan wants us to. And then he can have his way with us because we're disconnected from the source of life. I heard an illustration a couple years ago. Uh, I thought it was a really good one. Many of you maybe have heard it, but it goes like this. There was a little boy who he and his sister had, had gone down to their grandparents' house to celebrate the holidays. And for Christmas, he was given his very first slingshot. And so that boy would, would go out into the woods every afternoon. He'd practice using that slingshot. He, he really liked to, to, to practice, but he was really a lousy shot. He would try to hit trees and rocks, and, and he, would never, he would never be able to hit his target. And so one day, he was kind of discouraged, but he was coming back into Grandma's yard from the woods, and, and he spied her pet duck over by the pond. And just on an impulse, he said, I know I'll never hit it, but he, he, he pulled, he pulled the, the slingshot back, put a, put a nice big rock in it, and he let fly. The stone hit, and the duck fell dead. The boy panicked. Desperately, he hid the dead duck in the woodpile, only to look up and see his sister Sally watching. Sally didn't say anything. She just looked at him. Well, after lunch that day, Grandma said, hey, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. <laughs> Didn't you, Johnny? And she whispered to him, remember the duck. <laughs> so Johnny did the dishes. Later on, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help make supper. Sally smiled and said, oh, that's all taken care of. Johnny wants to do it. Remember the duck. Johnny stayed and helped while, Grandma, while Grandpa and Sally went fishing. 
After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, finally he couldn't stand it anymore. He tearfully confessed to Grandma that he had killed her duck. I know, Johnny, she said. I was standing at the window. I saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. How does Satan make slaves of us? Is it not through the leverage that he holds over us through unconfessed sin? Through the guilt and shame of that hidden sin, he makes us hesitate to approach God in prayer, hesitate to worship with our Christian brothers and sisters, and instead of coming to God to find repentance, to find forgiveness and repentance and freedom, we continue to hide from him and others, and Satan keeps trying to fool us all that time into trying to make up for our sin by doing something to make it up to God. And we never can. We're trapped. On October 31st, 1517, All Hallows Eve, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther posted 95 statements on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther had been through an intense battle with the devil. He had been racked by guilt and shame. He had tried everything his religion had to offer him to try to make up for his sin, but he always went back to beating himself up over it every time. But when he went to God's word, he finally discovered, or we should say rediscovered, some important truths. And a lot of those truths he ended up posting on that church door. Luther rediscovered that repentance is not a way of making it up to God. It's a way of coming clean and returning to God. Forgiveness, he discovered, is not given by the church in response to the actions or the payments of men, but it's given freely by God in response to the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And it's announced by the church. He rediscovered that we are made right with God, not because of anything that we have done, but purely because of what Christ did. Guilt and shame are real emotions. And you know what? They're not all bad either. There's a purpose for them. The purpose, though, is to draw us back to God, not to make us run away from Him. As Luther discovered, it is only when guilt and shame are not taken to the cross that they become either paralyzing or even enslaving to us. When we come clean and when we take these things to our Heavenly Father, we find freedom in Christ and we are reminded that the enemy no longer has any power over us anymore. Let me ask you just to, to maybe sit in silence, bow your heads for just a minute. Because I don't want anyone to leave here in chains. You may already have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's no burden on your back, but you're bent over as if there is one. There are no chains on your wrists, but you've got them wrapped together anyway, and you can't do anything because you're paralyzed by guilt. And you're afraid of God right now. You can be honest with him. If you need to, and you might, you can also be honest with a brother or sister in Christ and come out of the darkness and into the light. Bring your sin out into the open where God can freely forgive it, no matter what it is. Sometimes you need to fight through the shame, fight through the feelings of guilt, but before that you need to realize that the cross 
was 100% effective against sin. That you didn't do anything that somehow disqualifies from the atonement. That you didn't do some unique, horrible thing that God's never seen before. Or, oh my goodness, I couldn't ever forgive that. Satan's telling you that, not God. Satan can only have power over you as long as you walk in the darkness and don't come into the light. There might be something that you need to do today, even in the next few minutes, this week, in order to bring that to the Lord. Find freedom. 